Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and talk with them in a special discussion group on LinkedIn. This year we are focusing on the topic of employee engagement on Bookends and my guest today is Lee Cullen who is the author of the book Engaging the Hearts and Minds of All Your Employees. Following today's interview, you are invited to engage Lee in conversation on LinkedIn. Just logged in to LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss employee engagement issues with your peers. You can dialogue with Lee Colin and other authors who are also members of this group. Here you will find a link to a recording of today's interview as well as previous interviews. I'm Susan Stamm, and I am pleased to welcome Lee Cullen to Bookends today. Lee is a leadership author, advisor, and energizing speaker. He is passionate about delivering simple, powerful tools that leaders can put to work right away. Lee's cut-through-the-clutter insights appear regularly in a wide range of print and online media. He is also a frequent presenter at meetings. Virtually every Fortune 500 company and many small companies as well have experienced the positive impact of Lee's practical approach. Lee's 25 years of hands-on industry and consulting experience is balanced with a doctorate in industrial and organizational psychology from George Washington University. Lee is the author of Engaging the Hearts and Minds of All Your Employees, and you can purchase his book or connect with Lee through his website, which is www.passionateperformance.com. Thanks for joining us on Bookends today, Lee. Thank you, Susan. My pleasure to be here. Lee, we hear an awful lot about employee engagement these days, but I was wondering about leadership engagement. I think it's often assumed that all leaders are engaged. Can you share your thoughts about this and a little bit about the research that you cite from Hewitt Associates related to this topic? Certainly. Uh, let's start with just some of the research from the Hewitt Associates you just mentioned. Uh, they found that um, that organizations that had double-digit growth, that's pretty substantial growth, 10% or more a year, had senior leaders that were 25% more engaged than their employees. So the leaders were actually engaged more than the employees, and those leaders were more engaged than other organizations that didn't have t- more than 10% growth. So the fact is that you know, I, I just call it it's the basic trickle-down that we're all aware of. So we have to have engaged leaders to have engaged employees. And, and when I'm talking with leaders, I always tell them that you can't play Uncle Sam. You can't just point your finger and say, okay, you guys, you go be engaged, right? You have to set the example and ignite the fire of engagement inside yourself first. So uh, it, really, it really just to start uh, with the leader. We know the importance of the leader uh, and I'm all about personal responsibility, that employees need to take responsibility for their own engagement. But I also know that uh, even an employee that's naturally uh, engaged can even become more engaged if they have, you know, a leader that's setting the example. And, all, you know, I, I always tell our, our clients that I would take a, an engaged leader that's setting a positive example any day over any other type of cultural change initiative we could take, right? So you could do all of the kinds of things to create a, you know, an engaged workforce, but if we just have the leaders setting the right example and trickling that down, that's the most powerful type of intervention you could ever have. So it really does uh, start with the leader, and it's important that they take responsibility for their own engagement first and then focus on how they can help employees get be, be the best they can be. So critically important. And, uh, Certainly one of the my favorite leadership experts you quote as you open your, your book up, and I was so mm-hmm. happy to see the quote from Peter Drucker. Sure. He said, accept the fact that we have to treat anyone as a volunteer. Uh, that gave me pause. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you think the Drucker was talking about here, and um, <laughs> how could an approach like this inspire owner-like behavior? Right, and I think what, what he was getting at is that we're really moving closer to kind of a free agent workforce. You know, if you, if you look at the entertainment industry, you know, as a as a movie comes together for to be created, we bring we bring all these experts, you know, photographers and handymen and grips and actors and and costume designers all together for a certain period of time. You know, boom, we knock out a project, the movie's done, it's released, and we go off to do something else. And we kind of add that to our skills and, and professional portfolio. And really, in some ways, we're moving closer to that in the, in the general workforce. Um, and if you just think of that 
that broader dynamic coupled with the fact that, um, you know, the supply and demand, although in our current environment it doesn't seem like that because we have a tough, you know, bit, bit of an economic challenge at the moment, but the broader trend of having more jobs for than the people that we have to fill them still exists. You know, we're, we have, what, 10,000 baby boomers, you know, retiring every day. Uh, we have, you know, this shortage, this potential protected, uh, projected shortage of 5 million people in the next few years for jobs. Uh, those are still the broader megatrends that tell us that, that as a leader, we need to know that employees have choices and and we just can't we can't take them for granted and we have to take more uh more strides than we maybe have in the past in terms of being able to engage them and exciting them about our opportunity uh so that they don't just kind of leave up somewhere else yeah i that's an interesting um your metaphor for how a movie comes together i was thinking of just-in-time delivery, in a sense, we're almost just-in-time companies or just-in-time organizations. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. For project work. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how organizations such as Southwest Airlines and Google have used culture to create high levels of engagement? Absolutely. Uh, you know, they've done those two in particular that you mentioned, uh, Southwest and Google, have done a great job of engaging employees' hearts. And, and the model that we'll talk about in a little bit is about and to elicit this, what I call passionate performance, you have to engage people's hearts and their minds. Um, Google and, and Southwest done a great job of engaging people's hearts and, and making the workplace really part of a family. And so you feel that same sense of connectedness. And you know as well as I know that, you know, many of us will die for family members. I mean, we'd really go the extra mile to make sure a family member is taken care of. And if you create that same sense of connection in an organization, you can create some extraordinary effort uh, that would go into getting your, your job done. So uh, that, that's kind of the broad approach that they've taken. So they, they've, you know, they make it a fun place to work. They shower you with love. You know, Southwest Airlines literally showers you with love. That's their whole deal. You know, we're all about love, L-U-V. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, But I want to be clear, too, that – what I call passionate performance, which is really you know that full engagement of an engaged mind and an engaged heart, can take many forms. Uh, companies like Texas Instruments or NASA, uh, you know, even technically oriented companies with lots of engineers and stuff that aren't necessarily, you know, fun and lively places to work at, so to speak, in, in the traditional sense that we think of as you know, you know, you know, beer parties and pizza on Friday afternoons type of things and and ping pong tables in the break rooms. Um, they could still be passionately performing organizations. And so it, it just like anything, the culture, uh, the, the, your culture would kind of dictate what passionate performance looks like. And so you can have an organization that's pretty driven, pretty focused, you know, not even as sociable as you might think, still be an organization that you get great, uh, you know, great levels of engagement from. So there's not a cookie-cutter recipe. <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay. In, in Chapter 2, you suggest that selecting engaged engaged employees, you know, actually in the hiring process is mm-hmm. not actually sufficient for achieving passionate performance. Can you tell us why? Yeah, well, I think um, I would say, you know, good selection is necessary but not sufficient. We need a good match, of course. But the fact is that 99% of our work life and our level of engagement is dictated by our direct supervisor. So it's like the old kind of hereditary versus um, environment, um, you know, argument. And so, you know, we want, we certainly want to hire someone who's maybe naturally engaged and enjoys their work, and there's a good match between how, you know, their natural skill sets and what the job requires, so they could be, in, they could be working in their sweet spot, so to speak. Um, but just as importantly, you know, the, the fact is, even two, two people that have this, you know, even the same level of engagement coming into an organization, if one comes into a situation where the boss is you know, is doing a great job in engaging that employee, they're going to even heighten their level of engagement. And one comes into a boss where he's not so engaging, where he kind of, you know, zaps you, you know, in, in Blanchard terms, um, you, that engagement level is going to go down. So, uh, you know, we always say that, that, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave people. So, you know, that we want to select people well, for sure. But the truth is, the, the ultimate level of engagement we get out of them is really what happens once they come on the job and, and to what extent that leader uses engaging techniques. So leaders are critically important. 
And uh, you, you tell us a little bit, I tried to uh, share, you know, a way to kind of look at quantifying this and actually shared some research in the book. Mm -hmm. um, one of the sources that you talked about uh, talked about this $300 billion per year uh, number. Uh, that's a big, scary number yeah. of what it actually costs uh, our, our collective organization yeah. um, employee engagement. Do you think the average organization has a handle on this, and um, how how does some of this cost actually show up for organizations? Yeah, uh, in short, Susan, I do not think that most organizations really have a handle on that because disengagement is really like a cancer in an organization. It's silently kind of eating away, unfortunately, and kind of once it becomes visible outside the skin, so to speak, uh, to the rest of the organization, it, it's often too late. And, and the most the, the most dangerous part of, you know, disengagement is, you know, when you think about it, once it, disengagement really is a continuum. It's not an on and off switch. So people start doing things that are more disengaged. Maybe I'm just, I stop coming in early like I used to. And then maybe after a while I don't go the extra mile for my teammates. And then maybe even it uh, accelerates to, uh, to the point of, you know, maybe I'm even using company time and resources for my own benefit. Uh, then I'm maybe sabotaging and who knows. But once someone leaves, which is the ultimate statement of disengagement, that's easy. You know someone that cancer doesn't affect your organization anymore. But that all the rest of those points of the continuum that I described are the most dangerous parts. Uh, I call it, you know, it's the point where I quit but I forgot to tell you, right? Yeah. So uh, that, that's where it's very dangerous. And I'm not sure, uh, and because it's, it's somewhat hard to quantify, I'm not sure people capture that all the time. Uh, and or, or really have the measurement mechanisms in place to be able to capture or the proactive leadership practices to be able to capture. And so just one, one simple kind of visible quantifiable um, uh, measure that we find is that disengaged uh, employees tend to miss about 3.5 more days per year than, than other employees. Now, there are lots of other symptoms of disengagement, but that's one that's very easy to get your hands on. So if you just think for a mid-sized company of someone trying to schedule or, you, you know, and, and, and do all the rejuggling operationally to manage 3.5 more days per, per disengaged employee, that could start adding up pretty quickly. And across the U.S. economy, you know, that's about 86.5 million days per year in total oh. for disengaged employees. It's a lot, lot of days off. So. My goodness, yeah. I guess in many respects, it's probably better for people to quit and leave than quit and stay. Um, but, uh, that's right. You know, uh, do you think that when people actually quit and leave, do you think a lot of organizations re really have a handle on what is really driving turnover? Do you think they, you know, without using, for example, an outside source, do you think they really know what's going on? Well, I, I would say, Susan, uh, uh, unfortunately a lot of times not, because even if they use an outside source, you know as well as I do, you know, use third-party sources, and, and I, I'm even one of those myself, but after the fact, people are still pretty savvy. You know, they don't. No one wants to burn bridges and stuff. So after the fact, you really get fairly filtered information. So it's really important, you know, as an ongoing process in an organization, in my opinion, to be able to tap in to your organization with 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 kind of I call them just pulse checks on how are people feeling, what are they doing, you know, what are they thinking. Uh, and I'm a big proponent of more frequent, much shorter kind of data points. So as opposed to having an annual or a semi-annual employee attitude survey or engagement assessment, if you will, you know, use a Zoomerang or SurveyMonkey or something simple. Just throw out three to five questions to your employees on your intranet or through some independent party just to kind of see how, how they're doing. And it's a more frequent way of kind of staying on, on top of things. Uh, but even aside from that, it's also a matter of, as a manager, am I kind of doing a little bit of my management about walking around? Am I doing skip-level reviews to get down below my direct reports down to that the next level to see what they're thinking and feeling? Am I in touch with my customers to see if they're having the same kind of engaging interactions with my employees uh, that I am? So uh, I don't think you have to be overly scientific about it, but I do think there has to be a conscious effort and attention on capturing data points associated with levels of engagement along the way. That way you could address it more proactively. Closely related to this, you talk a little bit in the book about the importance of, of leader to be proactive, and, and mm -hmm. certainly what you're just describing would certainly be a proactive way of managing uh, the whole issue of employee engagement and being on top of it and mm -hmm. knowing what it is, of course. Can you, you talk about the, 
uh, these signs of disengagement. Certainly, mm-hmm. someone's left, it's too late. Um, but um, you you share a, a list of these and 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 uh, some red flags and. And I was wondering if you might talk about these a little bit and, and tell us a little bit about why organizations you know, just totally miss these or, or not see them as trends. Sure, sure. And let me just rattle off a few of them just to give everyone a, a flavor for that. Uh, if you start noticing like a, a higher frequency of missed deadlines or uh, just generally lower morale, whether it's through, an, an, through, whether it's through a survey or just feeling the energy level dip in your department or your organization or your team or your location, uh, looking at higher burnout rates, people kind of struggling with that work-life balance or feeling like, gee, I've kind of done this before. And, um, you know, a lot of times uh, burnout is not really related to workload. It's really related to people just not really having fun with what they're doing. Uh, and Or even just a sense of complacency, people not willing to stretch a little bit beyond uh, their comfort zone to, to do something new or people feeling like, well, you know, we're kind of sitting pretty, that, that kind of mentality. Uh, we also find some kind of finger-pointing and name-calling, you know, people saying, well, that's not my problem, or oh, they goofed up over there. You start seeing, ele- you know, not, not every organization has some of these. I want to acknowledge that. But if you start seeing elevated levels above your norm is really what we want to start looking at. Um, a lack of accountability and responsibility. Again, people saying, you know, that's not, it's not my, not my job type of uh, mentality and language you might start hearing. And obviously we, we already alluded to the fact of just increased absenteeism. And I think it really requires some leadership courage, and that's, I think, what's missing a lot, to really address these issues when they're really just kind of molehills. And I kind of call it the 110-100 rule, where sometimes if you address something, you see a change in someone's behavior, and maybe it's no big deal. Maybe they have something going on at home. Maybe they just have a newborn child. Yeah, they might be tired. We could always attribute the behavior change to something different. But nonetheless, if we're proactive about it and address it now, you know, the the unit of, of impact on the organization might just be a one, so to speak. You know, just no, no big deal. We address it, and it's fine. But the longer we wait, if we wait a little bit longer, it turns into a 10. If we really wait till it blows up, it's something that's really visible. It's a 100. So we kind of have this exponential impact when we don't address some of these issues in a proactive way. We call this kind of preventive management, if you will, just like you have preventive maintenance on your car. So if we're not preventive about it, these things that might just be, you know, a little sound on the engine, all of a sudden we need a new transmission type of thing. So, um, but it takes leadership courage. It takes people that are willing to address it with the employee, know that it's in their best interest because employees want to be engaged. They don't want to be disengaged. Uh, but I think a lot of times it's just easier for people to say, oh, let me just sweep that under the rug. Let me give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, let, I just don't want to deal with that right now. I'm too busy doing other stuff. And I would say we, we live in this information-rich, time-poor world, so leaders are busy on the leadership treadmill, running, 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 and sometimes we forget to do some of the proactive things. Um, but we find people that uh, – leaders that manage their attention well on these things and focus on those things, and even if it's just a few minutes a day to, to those proactive data points to – Talk with people, assess, address. Um, that 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 you know the old you know the old saying that ounce of prevention uh, pays off pretty big for them. Yeah, it certainly does. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, and and I wonder if if some of the reason that leaders don't address it is because they tend to think you know back when it's at that I think you called it one ten a hundred. Yeah. That's the model. Back when it's a one. That maybe they're looking at it as a real negative to have to say something and address it. That that's actually some sort of negative action on their part, right? Right. Rather than just expressing interest from the employee's perspective, right. the fact that their their boss notices a change and, and and sits down and takes the time to discuss it, they may see that as a very positive, supportive act on the leader's part. Would you agree? You know, yes. Uh, I, I I apologize. I didn't mean to interrupt, uh, but I, I agree completely. And and and. I struggled with that myself. When I was a leader in, in, in corporations, uh, I, I really preferred to kind of sweep it under the rug. It wasn't my sweet spot to kind of address issues. And then I kind of just had a little paradigm shift and I said, you know what, my job as a leader is to help my team be successful. And if, if everything I do comes from the point of me having a vested interest in their success, then it's all much more comfortable and much more matter of fact. And I went from a point of having to really, I was very kind of risk, you know, very conf- conf- con- um, conflict averse 
to being very comfortable with it because I was like, you know what, I'm just having this conversation because I want you to be successful. Right. And if it really comes from a sincere place, and then it, that's really how the feedback is taken or the comment or the inquiry is taken. So to your point exactly, if, it, if it's framed appropriately, I think it's um, a pretty comfortable. Maybe it's just a very nonchalant discussion. It's fine. You move on. If it's something more um, more important or more in-depth, then you, then you have that real tough, maybe a tougher discussion. Yeah. Good. Thank you. You, you talk. Uh, you actually provide a, a quote from Andrew Carnegie, which I found kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But you say that that uh, Carnegie said, "I wasn't familiar with this. Was pretty interesting to me mm-hmm. that the average person puts 25 percent of his energy and ability into his work. Mm-hmm. The world takes it their hat off to those who put more than 50 percent of their capacity and stand on stands on its head for those few and far between who devote 100 percent." What was Carnegie really talking about, and how can we capture this in the workplace? Well, I, I don't know that our friend Andrew was basing this on any kind of research, but I think you know, <laughs> I think I think you know, in concept, there's some faith validity. People would you know would agree with that, and I think he was really talking about engagement. He was talking about passionate performance. Now, you might say, boy, you're looking through a filtered lens, Lee, aren't you? <laughs> of course, I am. Um, but I really think he was talking about people's potential. One of the comments I put in there after his quote was that we compete against our own potential every day, and that's really our biggest competitor. And so what he's saying is people are not necessarily tapping into their full potential. And so I take it as it's really about the leader eliciting that full potential from their employees. And, and uh, there's a quote from a, a gentleman named Ed, Ed Gubman, a colleague of mine years ago, that he mentioned – uh, that you know, engaging leaders make good employees great people, and I think that has a lot to do with that. To me, that's about having people fulfill their potential. And so, again, a lot of times we'll talk to leaders about this, and they'll get you know they'll focus on the frustrating aspects and maybe some of their employee performance and stuff. But I, I, I still say it's really the leadership's the leader's role to do the right things to get 100% out of their people. And and if they if you do that. Uh, you talk to anyone that has had a leader like that before, boy, are they incredibly loyal to them? Do they remember them? Has that leader created defining moments in their professional life? Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about discretionary effort and showcase what this looks like at, at some of the examples that you use, for example, um, Agilent and mm-hmm. HP? Absolutely. Um, discretionary effort I, I consider to be kind of the big payoff of passionate performance. Passionate performance is just a, a you know, a, a term I coined because the, the passion comes from the emotional engagement side, engaging the hearts of employees, and the performance comes from the from the uh, intellectual side, engaging the minds of employees. And either side, in and of itself, isn't doesn't cut it. So if you just engage people mentally or, or, or intellectually. Um, you get, it's going to be kind of a workshop over time. If you just engage people emotionally and just engage their heart, it's a party, you know. So, so you have, they have to come together. But when they do come, come together, you get what I call discretionary effort, and it's basically people willingly going the extra mile and giving extra effort to achieve your team's goals. That's all it is. And, and ultimately, it's what I – some people even call it kind of ownership behavior, people acting like owners of the business. And – um, and so just one example I share was that uh, a while back when we had a, an economic downturn, much like the one we're in right now, uh, HP uh, uh, spun off um, Agilent, which is one of, its, uh, one of its divisions. It's doing quite well now. Uh, but they had eliminated about 8,000 jobs at the time, and there were more than a few accounts of managers and HP walking around at 10 o'clock the night before the big layoff occurred where people were still at their desk making sure that they were leaving things in good order, making sure everything went smoothly afterward. You know, and so that's the kind of payoff you get from, uh, you know, from doing the kinds of things we talk, we're talking about in this book. And that, that's the payoff from discretionary. If that's, you know, people, you know, I'm getting laid off, whether I'm severance or not, I could be, I'm, I'm leaving at 5 o'clock in most cases. But uh, even in the worst of scenarios, people were giving their extra effort. So you can imagine in, in good times, if the business was good for Agilent, uh, the kind of discretionary effort that that organization would be getting from its team because of the engaging leadership practices it was employing. Such a, such a powerful example, I thought. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about achievement. Um, mm-hmm. The first leg of your kind of three-legged uh, stool model for mm-hmm. building engaged minds. Mm-hmm. Um, it uh, it seems that all leaders who are responsible for driving the success of their organizations would absolutely want their employees to achieve. 
yet many times leaders seem to get in the way of achievement. Can you talk a little bit about this and share you you uh, share four different ways that leaders can eliminate barriers uh, to achievement. Could you could you share uh, with us a little bit about those? Absolutely. Well? Just to put it in context a little bit on the on the intellectual side or engaging the minds of your employees, there are three basic kind of human needs that need to be met. And the first one is achievement we're going to talk about, and then there's autonomy and mastery. So just focusing on achievement right now, again, it's a natural – these are all human needs. So if you think about the arenas of politics, sports, business, uh, the arts, you know, the need for achievement is pretty clear. You know, we, we all want to achieve something uh, in our lives, maybe in varying degrees, but we all have that basic need. So the goal as a leader is to make it easy for people to achieve. That's really the goal. And so sometimes what happens is with as leaders, we kind of just get in our own way or we get in our team's way uh, and we create barriers uh, for them to, to, to achieve. So um, a few of the ways that we can eliminate those barriers to achievement are as follows. There are four you just mentioned. We'll kind of go through those now. Uh, the first one is just to be a resource provider, to make sure that they have the necessary, you know, materials, information, introductions, access, you know, anything they need to be successful in their job. That's, that's to me, the most fundamental kind of role we play as a leader, to make sure that, that our team has the tools and resources to do their job. And if for some reason we're, we're getting in the way or find ourselves maybe in a little bit more of a bureaucratic mode saying no, no, no. Now, now I'm not saying be, don't be financially judicious and say, oh, you need 10 more headcount. Yeah, I'll give that to you. But generally speaking, we want to make sure people have the basic tools to do their job. The next one is to make sure we're kind of just, I, I call it just explaining the game. It's just so people understand how their job connects to something bigger. In fact, there was a research by the Harris Poll of about 11,000 households that found that um, only 15% of the workers could identify their organization's most important goals. That's, that's a pretty sad state on our leadership's ability to explain the game. And so that really boils down to just four questions. If you, if you look at the uh, attitude research over about 50-year period of time, uh, the number one reason, uh, the number one concern employees had was that, um, that there was lack of communication. And I think, you know, explaining the game is really kind of a pay me now, pay me later pr proposition. So we need to make sure we're communicating well. But, but that really doesn't tell me very much. Gee, lack of communication, we could all guess that. But if you boil it down a little further and do a factor analysis on that, there are four basic questions that employees are always asking, and they are as follows. What are we trying to achieve? How are we going to achieve it? How can I contribute? And what's in it for me? And so if you look at those four questions again, it really boils down even further. So how are we going to achieve it? or what are we trying to achieve is, is basically what are our goals. How are we going to achieve it? What are our plans? How, how do, can I contribute? My role. And what's in it for me? My reward. So really it's goals, plans, roles, and rewards. So in all types of interactions and communications as a leader, we want to make sure we're answering at least one of those four questions to make sure that we're explaining the game for our team. That will certainly help uh, them meet the need for achievement. Uh, a third way to eliminate the barriers to make sure that we're matching authority uh, to responsibility, Susan. Uh, it's, sometimes it's, uh, it's easy to kind of give someone the responsibility to get something done, but then not necessarily give them the authority. You know, go plan this meeting and make sure it's successful, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yet the person doesn't have the, uh, the budget authority to be able to, you know, pay for the facility or make something happen. Or, you know, go, go facilitate this team and make sure we get this project done in the next month. Yet that person doesn't really have the authority to make sure that, that those people don't get pulled onto other projects. So balancing the authority and responsibility is important to make sure people don't feel frustrated. And, again, we can all think of times in our own careers where – we may have had a certain level of responsibility, but our authority didn't match. It's a very frustrating situation to be in, so we certainly don't want to put our own our own team in that same uh, situation. And the last one is to just be decisive. You know, many times we kind of get up, caught up in this analysis paralysis, and the leader oftentimes, as we hear, is really becomes a bottleneck for people wanting to kind of just get their job done. And I'm a big proponent of the 80-20 rule and helping people, you know, just getting – 80% of the information and 20% of the time, and then just using our leadership instincts and our intuition to, to make the rest of the decision. Uh, and, and I'm just a big proponent of the 80-20 rule in general. If, if you think about, you know, everyone knows that, you know, probably 80% of our problems come from, you know, 20% of the employees or 80% of our sales come from 20% of our sales force. 80% of the traffic jams come from 20% of the roads. <laughs> uh, you know, 20% of our wardrobe is generally worn 80% of the time. Uh, so it, it, even in decision-making, we use that to capture 80% of the information we need to make an important decision in 20% of the time, 
and then use our leadership instincts to make the rest of the decision. Because what we also find is that using the remaining 80% of the time to capture just a small bit, that 20% of remaining information we need to make a solid decision, doesn't improve the quality of our decision. So being swift in our decision-making is also another way that we can uh, eliminate barriers for our, our team. Great. Those are really helpful. You know, a, a little bit ago you, you mentioned the model and you and you highlighted autonomy as the second component of, of the mm-hmm. engaged minds model. I'd like to talk about that a little bit right now. Sure. It seems within, you know, where we are today, we're all very downsized. We're operating our organizations as lean as we possibly can. You know, autonomy really should be a leader's best friend, you know, really wanting people to be out there and be as independent as possible. Um, Why do so many leaders struggle with this, and how can they build more autonomy in their organizations? Well, it, it, it is it is a challenge because I think there's a we have a, con, a control thing going on here, you know. And naturally, leaders, uh, people that elevate into leadership roles, want a sense of control. They have kind of a um, you know a, a forceful uh, mentality. And I say I don't say forceful in a judgmental way. They they want to control and get things done. Um, but to meet the need for autonomy, we have to give up a little bit of that control. So let's say I've done I've done your job. Uh, Susan, for the past five years. Now I've been promoted to your supervisor, and and I, I kind of, hey, you know what, I know how to do your job, Susan, so I'm just going to kind of tell you how to do it. That's my natural instinct versus saying that, you know, well, Susan's in the job now. Things change. Let her figure out the best way to do it, and maybe the best way to get from A to Z is not always to go A, B, C, D, E, and maybe Susan has figured out a way to go from A to M to T to Z. Um, and the distinction here we call uh, is something that's helpful to highlight is the difference between what I call under the hood and dashboard knowledge. So as a leader, we use dashboard knowledge all the time, just like a dashboard in your car. Is my engine running hot? Um, what's my mileage? What's my speed? How's my oil level? All that kind of stuff. But under the and, and that, that that information changes somewhat, but not too much. But under the hood knowledge, which is the knowledge that you have as a worker doing the job day to day before I was supervising you, changes by the minute. So, you know, a spark plug might start get corroded. Now, that doesn't show up on my dashboard yet, but it's happening in the engine. Or a fan belt, you know, a belt is starting to wear out. It's going to snap soon. Or, or so there's lots of stuff happening under the hood all the time. And I think it's, it's, it's useful for leaders, particularly if they want to meet this need for autonomy, to understand that even though they've done that job maybe for a long time, once they leave that job, they don't really have access to that under-the-hood knowledge. Now, it doesn't mean you can't check in under the hood every once in a while, but the fact is we have to trust our team to be able to, you know, bring that information to us and give us heads up that things on the dashboard might be changing soon. Uh, and and that's, that's how we start giving people feel a, a sense of control and autonomy uh, in their job. A great metaphor. The, the final component of the engaged mind model is mastery, as you had to have mm-hmm. suggested. Uh, and you talk a little bit in, about this area in the book. You talk a little bit about what you call sweet spots, and mm-hmm. you share a very powerful illustration with a gentleman by the name of Ralph V. Giles. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about mastery, sweet spots, and Ralph? A- absolutely. Um, you know, I-, I mentioned all of these needs are kind of basic, basic human needs. So if you think about... Um, the need for mastery. If, if I were to pose a question to you about how many times do you think it takes, uh, how many times will a, will a toddler attempt to walk before he or she is actually successful at walking? Yeah. You might guess 100, 1,000, whatever, um, a lot, right? And, and the answer is as many as it takes. And to me that's a great illustration for the need for mastery and how inborn that is that even as a toddler we're going to just try, try, try until we get it. We don't really know what even walking is like, but we know we're going to try to do that. And it's that same need that still drives us even at work. We all want to be good at something. And so even as a leader, if someone's struggling in my department, we, that, does, that is not a good feeling for them. Right? We might get frustrated with them or something, but it's not a good feeling. So we know when we finally address that, there's some relief on our part and on the employee's part that we're addressing that to help them be more successful. Um, uh, the, the story about Ralph uh, Giles is just, um, you know, a guy who just really just 
didn't find his way, was kind of li- living the life, graduated high school and uh, applied to a design school, didn't get in, decided to just kind of hang out in the house and watch some Dukes of Hazards episodes and, and, and eat his granola until he kind of got a little nudging by one of his family members. And uh, ultimately, uh, today, you know, became recognized as one of the uh, innovators of the, the Chrysler 300 sedan and the, and the Dodge Maxim wagon. Um, you know, basically, he's known as one of the industry great uh, car designers. Um, but what happened was he kind of found he kind of found his sweet spot, you know, the thing that he was really interested in and good at. And I think that's the, the key is to look at those two questions. What am I absolutely passionate about? And then answer the other question, what, what am I kind of naturally gifted at? What do I do? What are the tasks that I do that I'm just kind of in the zone and real comfortable at? If you can answer both of those questions and find the intersection, that you're going to be living and working in your sweet spot. And it took Ralph a little a little while, but he he eventually got there. Um, so I, I think that's just real uh, important for people to think about, even as a leader. Am I leading in my sweet spot? And then for my team, am, am I making sure that they're working in their sweet spots? Because I think uh, when it comes to mastery and coaching. Uh, a lot of organizations these days are, are, are not even these days. I think historically have been focused on the here are the here's your performance appraisal this year. Here are the three things you need to work on. Blah blah blah. Right? It's always focused on the improvement areas. Now I'm not saying ignore the improvement areas, but I, I I am suggesting that we probably should have more focus on what are you naturally gifted at and how could we leverage you so that you could be working in your sweet spot more. Because when you're in your sweet spot, and you're in the zone. That serves everybody well. You're on fire. It helps the organization and that kind of thing. So um, uh, I, I just think that's a, a real critical thing. But I would encourage you to focus on your own personal sweet spot first, and then as you work through that, it'll be easy for you to help make sure that your team is also working in their sweet spot. And I, I really love this example in the book because, as I recall, um, it was Ralph's family, I, maybe a brother perhaps, that mm-hmm. found this uh, particular educational program, and it was as a result of the prompting of the people around him, which, you know, in this case it was his family, but that's what the leader of the team can do. That's right. So often it's hard for us to see what our gifts and real talents really are, and sometimes it's easier for those around us to observe those and, and mm-hmm. push us in that direction. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly, Susan, and I tie back to the quote from Ed Gubman earlier, of the engaging leader helps good employees become great people. Yeah. Right? And so that's, that to me that's part of that is helping them find their sweet spot and reach their potential. Absolutely. On, on page 93 in the book, you mm-hmm. pose this question. You ask, do you know your employee's best and most important source of learning? And then you answer the question with, it's you. Uh, of course, speaking to the, the leaders again. Mm-hmm. And I certainly couldn't agree with you more. Can you share uh, the powerful example of Andrew Carnegie um, uh, that you talk about in this portion of the book and, and explain your coaching hierarchy model for us? Sure, sure. Um, uh, you know, Andrew Carnegie just had so much to offer from his day, so I, I, you, I mentioned him another time. And, you know, when he came to the United States from Scotland, um, you know, he's a small boy. He did a variety of odd jobs and kind of, you know, worked his way up, obviously. And one time a reporter um, – Asked him how he had hired 43 millionaires, ultimately, you know, working in his, under his empire at 43 millionaires. And he responded that those men had not been millionaires when they'd started working for him, but they'd become millionaires as a result of working for him. And so the reporter follows up and asks him, well, how do you develop these men to become so valuable to you, uh, and, and that you paid them this much money? And he replied that the men had developed the same way gold is mined. I love that. You know, he said, when gold is mined, several tons of dirt must be moved to get out an ounce of gold. But but one doesn't go into the mine looking for dirt. They go looking for gold. And I, and I love that because he was looking for, the, looking for the best in people. And this is kind of what I was talking about before. He was looking for their sweet spot versus looking for all the dirt and, and kind of was able to turn them into the successes that they were. Yeah. And so this – this is kind of related to the point I make about to me that the leader is basically a coach. That's that's your that's your job, and uh, one of the things, uh, one of the simple models uh, that we talk about to be able to seize teachable moments is just this kind of learning pyramid that to help what we call prevent re-coaching. So, for example, if if I'm coaching you, Susan, and I'll say, well, Susan, um, you know. You're not doing that right. Uh, here's the policy. Read it. Make sure you abide by the policy. Well, you're basically just reading a policy. And, and the fact is when people just read something, uh, they're only remembering about 10% of what they read. Uh, and, and that's not good news for an author like me. So, so we need to make sure there are richer ways that they could remember things. So the learning pyramid, really, if you could just imagine a, a triangle, and at the top of it 
there's think about the fact that not, we remember 90% of what we say and do. All right. So in other words, once we have a chance to do something and demonstrate it, we're going to recall it better. It's encoded in our mind more richly. But below that, we only remember 70% of what we say only. Not, we don't do it, just say it. We only remember 50% of what we hear and see, 30% of what we see only, like looking at a picture, 20% of what we hear, like instructions, and again, only 10% of what we read, like a memo or a book. So as a coach, it's important to try to coach in ways that are higher up on this learning pyramid. So instead of just throwing a, a policy at you, I might say, Susan, let's talk through this and, and let's have you walk through it one time and, and, and show me how you might do it again. And so, um, so, so a lot of times leaders might resist and say, well, that's going to take a lot more time. And what we say is what it does is just prevent re-coaching. So maybe you're spending five minutes throwing a, a new policy at an employee to say do it right. But you know what? What are you going to be doing next week? You're going to be throwing that same policy at them. And so not only are you going to be frustrated, that employee is going to be frustrated because their need for mastery is not going to be met. So spending just a couple extra minutes with them to go a little higher up the learning pyramid uh, enables you to be more successful, enables them to remember it and prevent that re-coaching and better meet that need for mastery. So uh, we really work with leaders to make sure that they're uh, being just a little more diligent, investing just a few more minutes, and a lot of times it's really literally just a matter of minutes to, to push up that learning pyramid to uh, increase the effectiveness of their coaching. Great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I was also really interested in, in the story that you shared about Charlie Jones and oh, yeah. his experiences as a sportscaster, which really was a powerful illustration on the idea of the power of purpose. Mm -hmm. this, this is, of course, the first leg. We've just been talking about the engaging minds model. This is the first leg of the engaging hearts model. Tell us a little bit about Charlie and his experience in covering the Olympics. Absolutely. Again, uh, you know, purpose is the, is the first component of engaging the hearts. Um, and he was a sportscaster, and he'd co covered a couple of Olympics already. And so in the 1996 Games in Atlanta, he was kind of excited. He went to his producer to kind of get his assignment. He was all psyched. He thought he might get one of the big marquee events, you know, boxing or one of the, you know, the decathlon or something. And he finds out that he gets assigned the, you know, kayaking and canoeing events. So poor Charlie kind of is like a kick in the gut. But he was a good soldier. He's like, you know what, I'm going to figure out a way to make a story out of this. So he goes around to all the captains of the kayaking and the canoeing uh, teams and says, you know, hey, what happens if someone breaks an oar during the race? They would come back and say, well, that's, that's outside my boat. Well, so we'd come up with another question. Well, what happens if the, you, know, you start getting a storm in the middle of the race? And the guys would say, well, that's outside my boat. They'd say, well, what happens if one of your teammates gets sick right before the race? Well, that's outside my boat. So he kept trying to dig for answers, and he inevitably kept getting the same, the same response. That's outside my boat. That's outside my boat. And so it was very enlightening for him that the level of clarity of purpose that these folks had to determine what, what was outside their boat and what wasn't, how they stayed on purpose and how they didn't let things that they didn't have control over divert their purpose. And as a leader, we take a lesson from that, from that because we can easily, I mentioned before, we live in this information-rich, time-poor world. There's all kinds of stimuli coming at us now and all kinds of challenges, and it's very easy for us to get diverted and not be laser-like for our team in our, in our focus. Um, you know, I would say that I always use the metaphor of a sun being a very powerful source of energy. It gives off about a billion kilowatts of energy an hour, but with some sunscreen and a, a cap, we can divert most of its ill effects. But a laser, on the other hand, is a relatively weak source of energy. It gives us only a few kilowatts per hour. But with that relatively weak source of energy that's focused in a coherent stream, we can cure certain types of cancer. We can cut a diamond in half. So the question we pose to leaders is, are you a sun or a laser for your team? So we really have to be laser-like, obviously. And, and, and one of the ways we could do that is to stay focused on the things we have control over, things that are helping us meet our, our team's purpose. Good analogy. Love it. In the intimacy component of the Engaging Hearts model, you discuss the impact of, of things, a variety of things. What, uh, you talk a little bit about team size. You also talk about rituals. Mm -hmm. Can you highlight these for us a, a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. The, um, you know, the, the intimacy is, is really important. It's that sense of connectedness. Uh, it's kind of the glue that, that, that draws people together. You mentioned earlier kind of Google and Southwest Airlines. They've done a great job of, of, of meeting that need for intimacy and connectedness. And one of the ways to, uh, to meet that need is to kind of keep that sense of smallness. Uh, so if you look at, like, uh, product development teams from Microsoft, they try to keep them to, uh, I think, 25 or less. And uh, uh, design teams at Levi Strauss are 12 or less. And, and I think uh, even Amazon has this 
uh, two pizza rule that their teams shouldn't get any bigger than uh, than can, than two pizzas can feed. Just as a you know a fun general rule of thumb to make sure because you know that the the frontline team level is really kind of the glue to the organization. That's what people feel connected to. There might be a big corporate office you know miles away and 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 six organizational levels away, and that's all good and well. But I'm really feeling connected to uh, the folks I'm working with. So keeping that sense of smallness now. Maybe even if it's a larger team, there are ways to make sure we make make sure people feel connected. So that's the main point there. Um, and, but one of the ways we can create that sense of smallness is through the use of rituals. And, and much like if you could think back to college days of fraternities and sororities, having these rituals that bind people together, something that says this is something that we do that makes us special, that, that includes us and excludes others. Now, I know, you know politically correctness would say you shouldn't exclude other people, but there, it's important as an organization, as a leader, that you create things, rituals that, that bind people together and say, this is something special we do. It, it could be as simple as you know, celebrating people's birthdays on certain days or, you know, or having people share things at each staff meeting a success tip of the week or posting photos or volunteering at a local charity event or having a you know unique fun way of introducing employees i remember i was at one client one time and they would do a cheer before every staff meeting and these were high level executives getting up there doing this cheer that other people would say that looks just kind of corny well you know what it was a little bit corny but it was something they did in an unyielding way that made them feel connected and uh, and that's the key. You know, a ritual is not a ritual if you forget to do it every once in a while. It has, you know, the strength of the ritual is doing it in an unyielding way. You never you never miss it. And if for some chance you do miss it, if people start coming up to you and say, hey, what about, we were supposed to have, you know, a pizza last Friday. What about our first Friday pizza, you know? You know you've probably done a good job because people are expecting that. Um, but the rituals really are critical to make sure people are feeling connected. And what, what that gets you, you might say, well, that's all interesting and goodly, but what does that get you? It gets you discretionary effort. When people start feeling connected like their family members, like we have something, a special bond that other people don't share, that's when you get me going the extra mile for you. If, you don't, if you're struggling with your job or you can't figure something out, I'm going to be jumping to help you out. Uh, so those are the kind of these small acts of heroism that oftentimes go unnoted uh, in organizations occur because that need for intimacy is being met. That's great. I really enjoyed that part of the book. I love the two-pizza rule. I thought that yeah. was a powerful way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I, I'd like to, to wrap up our time today with mm-hmm. the, the final leg of the Engaging Hearts model, which is appreciation. Mm-hmm. You, um, can you tell us um, how the yellow car phenomena works and yeah. how you can use it to increase important management behavior like appreciation? You know, I, I love the yellow car phenomena. It's not too different than Andrew Carnegie, you know, looking – going into the mine looking for gold, not for dirt, right? Um, So if I were to ask you, Susan, when's the last time you saw a yellow car? You might say, well, I saw one yesterday. Now, if you live in New York City, you probably saw a ton of cabs today. But um, you might say yesterday. You might say last week. You're not sure. But all I could guarantee you is that now that I've heightened your awareness of yellow cars, you no doubt will go back on the road tomorrow and say, oh, my gosh, this guy Lee must have some contacts in Detroit because there are yellow cars all over the road now. And all I've done is heighten your awareness of yellow cars. And I was introduced to this concept when I was my wife was pregnant with our first of three children, and we're running around the city looking for all the baby baby paraphernalia. And I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, there must be something in the water here because everybody's pregnant. Well, of course everybody wasn't pregnant, but I had a heightened awareness of the state of pregnancy. Yeah. Well. So the same thing happens when we talk about meeting the need for appreciation because one of the blind spots for leaders is that they feel like they appreciate their employees more than their employees feel appreciated. Well, why might that be? I propose that it's because we intend to appreciate people. I don't know about you, but I intended to go to church last week, but oh, darn it, I forgot. I intended to tell Bobby's doing a great job, but oh, shoot, I just forgot to do that. I intended to go vote at the last election, but oh, I just got caught up. So, you know, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but others judge us by our actions. So the key is to turn our intentions to appreciate into acts of appreciation. So I suggest we could use the yellow car phenomenon by simply challenging ourselves to say, you know what, I know as a leader I have to look for things that are going wrong and correct them, but I challenge you to find one thing each person on your team is doing well today. Just find one thing, something you can be sincere about that's meaningful, that's specific. You know, don't say, hey, Joe, that's a great blue tie you have on unless you really mean it. But 
something that's sincere, specific, and meaningful. Those are three important criteria. Uh, and, and look for one thing each day for each person on your team. I guarantee you uh, you will find an abundance of things over time. And as a matter of fact, I, I would suggest that you might even think, oh, my gosh, my team's doing a lot of stuff right that I really just didn't notice before. Um, and the good news is there's never been any research, nada, none, nil, that has ever shown that any employee has ever felt overappreciated. So, so you can find lots of things to appreciate them for and, and not worry about overdoing it, as long as it's specific, meaningful, and, and sincere, of course. Um, but I think if there are any of the needs being met, I, what I have found in our, in our work is that the need for appreciation is the one that gets you the most discretionary effort from your employees because we want to do more for those who really appreciate us, uh, and it's the one that we tend to do the worst in general. And uh, at the risk of sounding sexist, I think male, male leaders tend to be worse at this than female leaders, um, and, um, and, and that's just a fact. We see that a lot. Um, so anyway, I just think the need for appreciation is critical, but, but look for those yellow cars. Look for people. Catch them doing something right and really focus on that. Guaranteed you'll find more of them happening. That's really great. I, I absolutely agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> and really would like to thank you for your excellent work and, and this great resource that, that you've created to help build employee engagement in the workplace. And it's just really been great to have this time with you today. And I'd really like to encourage anyone listening live right now or um, that will be listening uh, to the future podcast to purchase your really wonderful book, which is, again, called Engaging the Hearts and Minds of All Your Employees. And to get a copy of this book, you can visit uh, Lee's website, which is www.passionateperformance.com. Following our interview today, I'd like to invite you to join in this conversation on employee engagement by coming to a group in LinkedIn, which is called Bookends the Discussion. Um, if you join this group, you can pose questions for Lee, who will be joining us in the group, along with your colleagues and peers. You can also find a link to the recording of today's interview, which you can share with your colleagues and associates, or you can re-listen to the session yourself. Please be sure to invite your friends to join this group. In July, our guest on Bookends will be Michael Lee Stollard, um, who has written a book called Fired Up or Burned Out. And uh, Jake Jacobs, we'll hear from Jake Jacobs in August, um, who has written a book called Real-Time Strategic Change. And um, to be sure that you are always in the know about our events on Bookends, please go to teamapproach.com and signed up for the bookends notifications under the free stuff button of our, at our website today. So once again, I'd like to uh, really thank our wonderful guest, Lee Colin, for sharing his time and, and talent and expertise. Lee, it's been great to, to visit with you today. It was my pleasure, Susan. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye.